Hello, hello, friends. How are you? Hello. Hi, so good to be with you guys for this time of teaching God's word. I am really grateful uh, that you guys are with me. I see Kathy and Cruz. Thanks for joining me. And there'll be others coming in. We're also live on YouTube. Um, and so, um, yeah, to all of you, welcome for this uh, afternoon time of being in God's word. What a, what a lovely time to do so. So thank you. Um, so uh, everybody doing good today? Oh, wonderful. It cooled off a little. That's great. <laughs> yes. Awesome. I um, want to recommend today uh, that you definitely have a Bible handy and a notepad. Um, just to give you a heads up, we're going to be in Leviticus 26. It's one of the larger chapters of Leviticus. And we're actually going to peruse through the whole thing during this time together, which is kind of fun. Okay. Uh, the things I can do on YouTube that I can't do on a Sunday morning, <laughs> we get to really dive in a little deeper. So pretty cool. Uh, so, hey, the reason I, I set this um, month's teaching based on the God's Will class, I'm sorry, the Image of God class that I'll be teaching at Mariners is that I've been deep in this study now for several months preparing mm -hmm. for this material. And it has been really special to study it hard as well, but, but very special. And I thought it would be um, really good for people to uh, hear a little bit about, about the class and kind of understand why this is important. Because I don't know about you, but when you hear the image of God, or a lot of times you hear it in Mago Day, it sounds, if you have never studied it, it sounds, you know, kind of cool and interesting, maybe mysterious, but at the same time, you don't really know, okay, what are we saying here? And uh, the way I look at it is uh, the image of God in the Bible is only a few verses that actually mentions it. Um, and um, it's almost like an abbreviation, you know, uh, USA versus America, you know, the United States of America, or, or better yet, because that's a very simple one, a more complicated one, like the most famous formula in the world by uh, Einstein, you know, E equals MC square. Like we all think, oh, that's intriguing. What does that mean? And if you were to unpack it, it's this huge thing that has profound implications for the way that we live our world or exist. And so I think the image of God has a very similar kind of thing. It seems like a very small thing. Why are we spending any time studying it? But it has massive implications if we, um, if we were to actually study it. And I found that to be the case. To be honest, I had not studied that particular specific theme before. Um, and I, I think it's typical. None of us go looking for like, what does that really mean? And where do I go look for that? Um, in fact, when I was looking for books, I was amazed at how um, there's, there's a lot of books about it, but there's the books are very, very varied in the way that they talk about it. And many of them highly academic and hard to get through by the average person. Um, and so yeah, my hope is to make it more accessible um, through the class at Mariners and I wanted to give a preview of it today. So thank you so much for, for joining me today and um, my, my whole goal in, in not only today but in the class is to kind of demonstrate for us and cause us to be at awe at the connection between God the creator and humanity. But the fact that there is a connection and, and how incredibly beautiful that connection is, that relationship is. Um, that it's not God out there creating and 
uh, and humanity over here by itself. There's some people who really believe that, that God is out there, you know, somewhere and he created and he backed, backed away from creation and he's now watching from a distance or better yet, creating something else and doesn't even care what happened here, you know? I think we do that as people. We tend to create things perhaps and then lose interest in them and leave them behind. Um, and so we apply that to God, but that's not the God of creation. Um, he, he not only created, he is active in it. And as we will learn, especially in today's passage, as an example, he's very, very passionate about his creation and the connection with humanity. So I'm excited to dive into this with you today. Let me uh, open us in prayer and then we'll start. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for my brothers and sisters who've joined me for this time of being in your word. Lord, we are talking about you and you're so much greater, bigger, grander than we could imagine. And so Lord, um, speak to us as we are learning and listening and trying to capture what it is that you wanna teach us in your word. I pray that my brothers and sisters are encouraged to know you better, to draw closer to you, and to fall in love with your word, which is one of the ways in which you reveal yourself. And the way, of course, you revealed your son to us, God, and um, how we, it is that we can maintain a deep relationship with you as we seek to understand you and draw close. So help us do that today. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. So I picked Leviticus to give us an insight of this uh, deep dive class at Mariner's Church. Um, because after I studied all this material, I realized that when you get a concept understanding of the image of God, you will read a lot of scripture that people struggle with differently because you have a, a different view. I, I also think you view others differently. You view the world differently. Uh, the more you understand this incredible, incredible truth that we are created in the image of God. So to make the point, I, I, I prayed about it. And the only thing that got, that kept coming into my mind as I was praying about God, what, which, which, what should I choose? Was this idea of, I will be their God and they will be my people. That's all that kept coming to mind. And mm -hmm. as I went looking for that, I chose the book of Leviticus because how many people, if we're going to be honest, skip reading Leviticus, <laughs> right? It's the priestly, you know, this is, it's called Leviticus because it's the law of the Levites. It's the priestly clan of the people of Israel. And these are all the instructions that they're given for rituals that you're supposed to do. Um, and so it can be very, very clunky and, and actually boring to read at times. And people tend to skip Leviticus, but even in Leviticus, we're going to see this beautiful thing that, that I think the image of God teaches us, and that's that connection between God and his people. So for context sake, so we can be sure we're on the, on the basic right page, we must remember as we read Leviticus that this is, uh, this is about God and the nation of Israel, which God created. This was not a geographical nation. This was a, a, a people group that God created himself. He started with Abraham. He told Abraham, you will be a nation. And out of Abraham came generations of people who eventually became enslaved by Egypt. And when they were enslaved by Egypt, God rescued them and other people joined the people of Israel and became part of God's people. And that's what we call Israel today, right? The people, not, not today, but in the Bible, Israel, the nation of Israel. And this chapter is particularly, as we're going to read today, but the whole letter of Leviticus, 
is about this relationship between God and Israel. And God made a covenant with Israel. And uh, covenant, I think, is something that we kind of understand, but don't understand. A lot of people say, well, a covenant and a contract is the same thing. Not quite. Uh, a, a contract is uh, a, a legal document that has the, the force of the law behind it between two people voluntarily, obviously, where they make, they make a plan to say, okay, if you do X, I do, I do Y. If you do this job for me, I will pay you this amount. Uh, if, you, if, I, if I use your building, I could rent it for this amount. And there's this, often an exchange of dollars or compensation for that contract. Covenant is more than that. It may have a contract within it, but a covenant is more than that. A covenant has a lot to do with doing. You do X, I do Y. This is your part of doing. This is my part of doing. So it may not have a, a financial or a or a, a some sort of exchange of dollars, and it's not a legally binding thing. A covenant is actually higher, and and as we're going to read it here, this is a spiritual covenant between God and His people. So it has much higher uh, expectations, and you, you know when it's broken, you don't go to the law. You go to the two parties of the covenant to deal with what happens. And usually, a covenant is written in such a way that says. I, this is what I'm supposed to do. And if I don't, this is what happens. This is what you're supposed to do. And if you don't do it, this is what happens. It's very much cause and effect. You do, I do. If you don't, then this happens. Da, da, da. And so God makes this covenant with his people. And sure enough, the people don't do their part. God does his part. They don't do their part. And because of that, there's consequences. Now, what, what we're going to see as I, we study this chapter today is I want you to keep in mind, first and foremost, the story in the garden. Genesis 1 tells us the story of God creating humanity. And when you read Genesis 1, you will see, in fact, you can even see it visually. If you go to your Bible to Genesis 1, you will see that God creates. And as he creates, you see the various parts like God let there be light, right? And each one of these things are days. But when it gets to verse 26, so we get all the way to verse 26, all kinds of things are created. By the time you get to verse 26, you have the land, right? The sky, the, you know, you have the separation of the waters below from the waters above. You have animals, you have plants, all that good stuff. And it's said fairly quickly. Um, but then when you get to verse 26, it slows down and God's now talking about his humanity. And in this um, creation of humanity, uh, God actually gives them a specific set of instructions. He said, this is what you ought to do. And then he also said, this is what you ought not to do. And if you are a Bible reader, you'll know that by chapter three, humanity does not do their part. So as you keep that in the back of your mind, God creates male and female in their image and he gives them uh, a task to do. He, he calls them to do something and they, and then he tells them what not to do. And of course, just like all good children, like we are, right? We go do the very thing we're told not to do. <laughs> you touch anything you want in the room, not that. Yep. That's what I'm going to touch. And that's what humanity does. Well, in, in the same way, Israel breaks their covenant with God. God gives them directions. He saves them. And then he says, okay, now you're my people. And he tells them, now go be this way, go this way, because this is how we're going to bless the entire world. And that covenant, just for your notes, you can find um, in Genesis chapter, excuse me, Exodus 
me look it up real quick here. Exodus chapter six, get my notes because I've already said a bunch of things and I've already gone way down here, let's see. Okay, so Exodus chapter six, verse six is where God um, kind of makes, it, well, it's one of the places actually, it's not the only place. There's many times in scripture where God reminds his people, remember this is the deal we made, but in Exodus six, six chapter six, Chapter six, verse six, it says, therefore, tell the Israelites, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from the forced labor of the Egyptians and rescue you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and great acts of judgment. I will take you as my people and I will be your God. You will know that I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the forced labor of the Egyptians. So that's kind of like, hey, this is, I'm, I'm going to be your God. This is kind of how it's going to work. And then God gives his people all of these instructions on how they are to live as free people. They don't get the instructions first. And if they agree to them, he frees them. No, he frees them first and says, now go live this way. And as we know, they don't. Actually, they agree to do it. But time and time again, they don't. So in um, Exodus 19.8, you can mark that down and read it later. In Exodus 24, 7, in Joshua 2, 24, these are places where you see the people saying, yes, God, we're going to do everything you say. Absolutely. We're, we, you're our God. We're our people. We're going to do exactly what you say. And of course, they don't. Right? So now let's go to, with that as our background, let's go to Leviticus 26. The whole structure of Leviticus 26 is startling. If you go really, really high up and look down upon it, you'll see that it has three main beats, blessing, discipline, mercy. Blessings, discipline, mercy. Blessings if you obey. If you do your part, this is what's gonna happen, blessing. Discipline for disobedience, the consequences of not obeying. Other places in the Bible, you'll see it talked as blessing and curses. Again, this is a very common theme you see in scripture. And you see it all the way into the New Testament. Even Jesus uses it in Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon of the Mount, where he talks about blessed are those, right? And then Luke, when he presents the Sermon of the Mount, he's, he talks about the blessings and the woes. He, he talks about various woes. Woe to him who, right? So we see that language all throughout. Um, this blessing and, and discipline or blessing and curse. And, and even Moses, when he talks to his people, he reminds them, listen, you have to choose between obedience and disobedience. You must choose between blessing and discipline or blessing and curse. The power is in your hands to make that choice, but you're being given that choice, that free will by God. You get to choose. What's remarkable about Leviticus 26, which by the way, is written like a sermon. You go around reading Leviticus, which has all these rituals and all these festivals and all these instructions. And then we, this chapter kind of pops up in the middle of nowhere and it's written like a sermon. Like all these things that you're doing, all these rituals, all these festivals have an importance to them because they're actually leading you to something which is God's amazing grace and his connection with you. And that's why this chapter ends with mercy. Blessings if you obey. Uh, discipline or cursing if you disobey. But mercy if you confess. There's mercy. There's grace if you confess. 
man, and is that different than the way the world works, right? We, we have rules. If you break the rules, there's, there's consequences. And how often are we willing to give mercy or grace? Right now in our culture, we have this whole cancel culture where if, if you don't say things exactly the way they ought to be said, or you say things that offend anyone else, other people, and this is obviously a social media, internet kind of concept, will cancel you out. They'll unfollow you. They'll stop, they'll stop listening to you. They basically say, okay, you're done. I don't want to listen to you anymore. You are, you're now out of the conversation because you, you said the wrong word and or you believe a certain way and we don't want you in anymore. Where's the mercy in that, right? I think we as people struggle with mercy, giving each other mercy. And because of that, we forget that God is a God of enormous uh, mercy. We're going to see that even in the discipline, even in the discipline. Now, again, you're probably going to be asking yourself, what does this have to do with the image of God? Again, I want to go back to, I'm not going to teach you the class here because you got to go to the class to learn that. But I'm going to go back to this beautiful picture in Genesis where God created men and women, humanity to live in great relationship with him, to walk together, to be fruitful, to multiply, to subdue or rule or care for the rest of God's creation and to be in unity with God and each other for eternity. Everything that they needed was going to be provided. Every blessing of the garden you will see mentioned here in Leviticus 26. You're going to see this incredible picture of kind of God representing to us, here's what's available to you by God's hand if you choose to obey, or essentially, it doesn't even use that word, you use follow. You used to follow, follow me, be faithful to me. And, or, and here's the consequence when you don't. And there you see the opposite, all those blessings being undone by disobedience. At the same time, one of the incredible things about the image of God in humanity is that even when we disobey, we do not lose that dignity, that identity. We remain still image bearers. We remain still a precious creation of God. And because of that, he pursues us hoping we will confess and repent that we might receive his mercy, okay? So that's the big picture I want you to see. So once you kind of get this frame in your mind, you see that in scripture over and over and over again. And you will see why God seems very angry at times and very frustrated at times and seems to do things that are really like extreme, but that's because of his love for us is so, so much. In fact, uh, Eric Geiger taught at Mariner's Church a couple weekends ago a sermon on God's jealousy. Highly recommend that sermon because he really does a great job at explaining why God is a jealous God. Um, but that in the background, let's get into Leviticus 26. All right, it starts like this. Do not make worthless idols for yourself set, or set up carved image. I'm reading, by the way, from the Christian Standard Bible. So a little different than the NIV, but it will be pretty close depending on which one you have. Uh, set up carved image or sacred pillar for yourself or take sculpt stone in your land to bow down to it. For I am the Lord your God. Don't bow down to anything else. Doesn't that sound familiar when God is saying, don't, don't worship any other God. I'm the only God. Keep my Sabbath and revere my sanctuary. I am the Lord. That statement, I am the Lord, you'll find five times in the book of Leviticus. You'll see him say that over and over again. So you saw two just at the beginning of it. And then it begins by giving us an if. Now they say large doors hinge on small hinges, 
right? Or a, a huge ship can be moved by a teeny rudder, right? Uh, quite often, you know, massive machines are, are affected by a small little part that makes them move one way or the other. This statement, if, is one such thing. And in Leviticus 26, you will see seven if statements, seven, which I think is, you know, God does things in numbers. I believe that he is, he was the one who created math. So I think he loves doing this. The God's word is constantly showing us the perfection of God's word. And you'll see the number seven mentioned multiple times, which has this completeness to it. Okay. First one, if you follow my statutes and faithfully observe my commands. So if you follow my instruction, if you follow all that I have taught you, this is all that I will give you. And then from verse four, all the way to verse uh, 13 is this long list of blessings that God promises. I will give you rain at the right time and land, the land will yield its produce. The trees will, uh, of the field will bear their fruit. Now, doesn't that sound like garden language? All, all that you need, right? Your land will bear fruit. You will have rain. You will have trees. You have everything you need to feed yourself. Your threshing will continue until grape harvest, and the grape harvest will continue until sowing time. In other words, there will be this continuous amount of production of fruitfulness. It's like you're like finishing one harvest and the other one begins. It is like so much abundance. You'll have massive abundance, so you will have a hard time keeping up with all of this abundance. You will have, underline this, plenty of food. In the garden, Adam and Eve had plenty of food all that you need to eat, and you will live securely in your land. Verse six, I will give peace to the land. And remember, that's one of the blessings that God gives his people, a land. And that's important only in the context of Israel. Remember, Israel was not a geographical nation. It wasn't a group of people living in a certain part of the world. And then suddenly they became, they gave themselves a name and they were a nation. They start with the land, then they have a name. This is the opposite. God says, you're going to be my people. Then he gives them the land. And so now he says, you will have peace in the land and you will lie down with nothing to frighten you. I will remove dangerous animals from the land and no sword will pass through your land. So in other words, God's going to give them peace. If you trust me, you will have peace. Nothing around you will be dangerous. Again, go back to the garden picture of man being with all kinds of animals without fear of danger. No danger, no enemies, not even male and female were enemy against each other. There were no enemies. He says, this is the blessing I give you. You will pursue your enemies if there are any, right? This is obviously after the garden and they will fall before you by the sword. Five of you will pursue a hundred. You'll have this ability to conquer and be victorious, right? A hundred of you will pursue 10,000. Your enemies will fall before you by the sword. I will turn to you make you fruitful and multiply you. That goes back to Genesis 1 again, be fruitful and multiply. Who's going to do it now? God says, I will make you fruitful and multiply you. I will confirm my covenant with you. You will eat the old grain of the precious year and will clear out the old to make room for the new. You'll have so much abundance. And then this is important. Verse 11, I will place my residence among you and I will not reject you. I will walk among you and be your God, and you will be my people. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out from the land of Egypt so that you would no longer be their slaves. I broke the bars of your yoke and enabled you to live in freedom. 
Look at all the things we get out of that incredible blessing. We get the blessing of, we see by saying, all the food you need, right? You're gonna have your, your needs met. You will be without danger. You will live in peace. You will be victorious. But more importantly, we will be together. God and humanity in perfect harmony with one another in good relationship. Now, this is written in the book of Leviticus, where it is the book of the Levites, the priests. And their job was to be representatives for the people of God. So they represented God to the people and the people to God. And why were the priests necessary? Because God is holy and pure and perfect, and the people were not. And in order for them to be in the same place, there had to be some form of a mediator because you've got God who is holy and perfect in humanity that is broken. And when those two things come together, God who is good and just has to do something about the evil. It makes me think of an MRI. Have you had an MRI? Where they tell you, what jewelry do you have? You had to take off any jewelry you have, any metal, because if you go into that machine with your jewelry, that machine will suck that stuff off, off of you, will tear the earrings off of, of your, your ear. You know, I'm always terrified thinking, did I, did I have some sort of surgery that I don't remember there, there's some metal somewhere in my body <laughs> because I don't want that thing to come out. But the MRIs, that's what they do. The magnet is so huge. It pulls out, right, the metal towards it. And I have that picture of God's holiness so pure, so perfect, so cleansing, that when sin is before it, it's like it zaps sin out. It destroys it immediately. And therefore, humanity would be destroyed if they came before God broken. I mean, you have no choice. We are so intertwined with our brokenness. Something has to atone for our brokenness before we can be before God. The priests did that. They did sacrifices to purify the people so that they could have that intimate relationship with the God. All the festivals were to remind them that God is the one who provides for them. And all of the different um, rituals that they had to do were all these rituals to remind themselves they needed a way to have that close relationship with God. Now we know, Hebrews tells us, that our ultimate priest is Jesus. We no longer need those rituals. Jesus did all of the things that the rituals and all of those festivals were supposed to do so that now we can come, as Paul tells us, confidently before our creator, right? And we can come before the throne because we have made, made right. When Jesus sees us and we accept his grace and forgiveness, but now God sees us as his son, blameless, pure, holy, amazing, right? That's how God sees us. And so, we go, into, we go into all this blessing. Now, when you read that blessing, did you feel like, okay, why would I not obey God's commands? Why would I not follow his, his statutes and his guidance? I mean, it makes no sense. It's no different than when we think of, man, if I were Adam and Eve and I was in that garden, I would not, I would not take from that tree. Of course we would. Wouldn't you agree? Every one of us would do it. It's just the way that we are. We are given this powerful choice, and yet we choose against God. And so the next set of verses, which is from verse 14 all the way, it's a long one, until 39. <laughs> and I'm not going to read it, but I'm going to just quickly bounce around them real quick. You see this progression of God having to deal with his rebellious children if they choose to do so. Remember, this is all if. This is all, listen, you have a choice to make. If you follow, if you trust, if you obey, 
blessing. If you disobey, if you rebel, if you reject, discipline, right? And the discipline doesn't come all at once. It comes in layers. Okay, try, let's try this again, right? There's, here's some discipline. Hopefully that gets you back on track. Nope, okay, we gotta go do more discipline to get you back on track. Nope, good. The whole time the discipline of God is intended to rebuild his relationship with his people, to give us an opportunity over and over again to repent. When we see God in the, um, in the Old Testament, sending his people to captivity in Babylon. It was after years and years and years of God trying to get them to repent. God is a merciful, the Old, uh, the Old Testament is full of God's mercy and his grace. He would rescue his people, they'd love God, they'd say, okay, that's it, we're never gonna do this again. And then they were sure enough, they reject him again. And this cycle continues all throughout the Bible. You look at the Bible, the beginning of the Bible, everything's good with God and his people. They, they are close, they disobey. The rest of the Bible is obedience, disobedience, obedience, disobedience. God's chasing after his, after his people to get them to the right place the whole time. And so these verses start like this. Again, you see all, all these ifs. By the way, if you think of any questions, you can type them in the comment box and we'll get back to them at the end. So don't feel like you have to wait to the end to ask your questions if you have any, because I know I'm rattling all kinds of stuff, okay? All right, so verse 14. It starts with, but, but, okay, if you do all these stuff, look at all the blessing. However, on the other hand, yet, if you do not obey and observe these commands, you reject my statutes and despise my ordinances and do not observe my commands, here it comes. And he starts to talk about all the ways in which that the people of God will have to be disciplined for the purposes of restoring, not discipline to be mean, to destroy, but to restore, to purify, to redirect, to awaken. You know, I, I've got my grandchildren, by the way, in another room. Any minute now, right through my office, those two kids can come through because they're six and seven. And as much as I can tell them, please don't come into my office. That's like the greatest temptation on earth. I'm sure they're sitting outside going, when can we break in? <laughs> but when they disobey, I sometimes have to like get their attention. And sometimes that's all it takes. Just get their attention. Don't do that. And they stop. But sometimes, no, they need more than that. They keep at it, right? That's how many of you feel like you raise your hand if you've done this at some point where you needed not one discipline, but another and another and another before your attention got taken, right? Where you finally snapped out of it. And so you see the next if statements all having to do like, okay, that first one didn't work. Here comes the next one. But if after these things, you still don't obey me, right? He says, I will proceed. This is verse 18. I will proceed to discipline you seven times for your sins. Seven times for your sins. Again, that number seven representing completeness. I will, I will proceed to discipline you completely for your disobedience. There'll be a complete discipline. There will be a, a serious consequence for your disobedience. And then he goes into this long list. I will break down the pride. You know, in, in James, we're told that God opposes the proud. He opposes the proud, but he's good to the humble, right? Now, if we don't listen, verse 21, if you act with hostility, you still not awaken? Okay, one more try at this. Now, if you act with hostility towards me and unwilling to obey me, I will multiply the plague seven times for your sins. 
I will send wild animals against you that will deprive you of your children and ravage your livestock and reduce your numbers until your roads are deserted. And all we go, is that the same God who is loving? Why would God talk like this? Now, what you will see is the reversal of the blessings. So when we looked at verse 18, where it talks about if you don't listen, the land will be difficult to deal with. This one, you will now have danger. The animals around you, there's danger. Remember in the garden, remember in the blessing, you're amongst animals safe. Now you're not going to be safe because you're disobedient. Verse 23, if in spite these things, in spite all of that discipline, you still disobey. Don't accept my discipline. You act towards hostility towards me. I will act toward hostility towards you. And now he says, I will strike you seven times for your sin. Once again, there will be a full discipline for that. And now it talks about the sword against you. Now you're going to have, um, this says, though you withdraw from your cities, you will send a pestilence among you and you will be delivered into enemies' hands. You will no longer be safe with one another. You lose your safety. The next one. Oh, and then, and then it ends with verse 26, where it says, I will cut off your supply of bread. Ten women will bake your bread in a single oven and ration out your bread by weight so that you will eat but not be satisfied. All of the abundance of the blessing, which made, gave all the nourishment you need, suddenly gets taken away by a disobedience. And we're never satisfied no matter how much we have. That's one of the consequences of our sin. And then if you still don't obey, verse 27, and act with hostility, I will act with furious hostility towards you. Anybody feeling like, why is God so angry? Because he keeps trying to alert us to come back to him. And now we see a sense of chaos. Big paragraph here from 27 to 33. There is chaos in the city, nation against nation. There's no order. Even religion has no power. He says, I don't even smell the pleasing aroma of your sacrifices. Your religiosity won't even work, won't save you in, at this point. And so don't, don't even try that. I'll scatter you. You notice how we lose safety. Then number, verse 36, I will put anxiety in the hearts of people. So you lose all sense of shalom and peace, which is wholeness. Now, at that point, you're thinking God is mean. No, look at all the ways in which God is saying, repent here, repent here, repent here, repent here. If you don't, if you don't, if you don't. And he always told his people, these are the consequences of not doing your part. There's a huge consequence when we rebel to God who wants nothing more than to give us absolute huge blessings. Now, if they were just that, here's the blessing. And if you don't do that, here's the curse. I think it would be hopeless. Well, it is hopeless for all of us because we all fall short. We would all fall somewhere in here. Maybe the first one, but somewhere along the line, we all fall short. We see that in the, in the garden. And if God created man and women in his image and he called them to do something, to be something, and they, they can't be or they are not that, you would think that's the end of the story. God's going to start over, go to some other part of the universe and start a new, a new creation because this one didn't work. But that's not the God that we have because then we get to verse 40. Mm. I like this. But when you confess, or in some versions, this is, but if you confess, when they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their ancestors, their unfaithfulness that they practiced against me and how they acted in hostility toward me, and acted with hostility, and how I acted in hostility towards them and brought them into the land of their enemies. And when their uncircumcised hearts are humbled, 
and make amends for their iniquity, then I will remember my covenant. I will remember my promise. And he talks about his promise to Jacob, his promise to Isaac, his promise to Abraham. For the land abandoned by them will make up for the Sabbath by lying desolate without the people. When the people are, are disobedient, the land doesn't give them what they need, right? But he says in verse 44, I will not reject or abhor, abhor them so as to destroy them and break my covenant with them. Since I am the Lord, their God, for their sake, I will remember the covenant with their ancestors. I will have mercy. If they confess, Paul tells us in Romans chapter, um, Romans chapter, oh, is it eight? No, gosh, I wrote it down here somewhere. Um, where it says, if we confess with our mouths that Christ is the Lord, right? And we are willing to, to state our brokenness and confess it before the Lord. He is quick to forgive. Psalm 103 tells us that God is slow to anger. He's slow to anger. But he has to be just. He has to do something about evil. And what's amazing to me about the whole Bible is you see God reinforcing his original plan of creation. He created man and woman in his image. He gave them his image. He sent them off to do a task and to be a certain way. We fall short of that. And then the rest of the Bible, God is trying to restore that over and over again with jealousy and fury because this is his image bearers. It's actually himself, right? We are part of God. To destroy us is to destroy part of himself because we bear his image. And God's not going to do that. God wants to restore us, and that's what he does through Jesus Christ. So when you read the Old Testament, especially a chapter like this, you see the gospel all over it, right? You see the work of Jesus. You see if you confess, God is quick to forgive. You see all the rituals that were intended to bring people together with, with God. That's my, my clock saying, okay, woman, stop chatting. <laughs> Are you guys keeping up with all this? I got all this off my head. Um, we see God wanting to restore the relationship he has with his creation that, so that we can be what God created us to be, which is a blessing to others. We can reveal his goodness. And I want to uh, close this time um, with um, a book that I want to recommend to you. This, I don't know if you're going to read it backwards. Is it backwards? It's going to be on the show notes. And also Andy's going to put it on our chat. But this is a book by Daniel Darling called The Dignity Revolution. It's a book that I read as part of my study for the image of God. And wonderful book to read. Highly recommend it. Yeah, take a picture of it. That's a good way to capture it. Um, and you can get it on Amazon and such. And let me read one part of it that kind of encapsulates what we just went over today. This is in page 25. It says, we were created to glorify God by loving what he loves acting as he acts, living as he lives. Uh, he's kind of quoting from Ephesians 2, verse 10. In creating humanity, God gave us a mandate to rule and to create, to love and to lead. And then he quotes Genesis 1, 28. Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. You see, we are created for a purpose. We were created on purpose for a purpose. And 
everything that we see in scripture, including on in this chapter of Leviticus, a book that most people skip, shows God's passionate attempt to restore humanity to a place in which we can do all the things he created us to do. And so you and I today, why it's important to understand that we are image bearers and why this class, I think it's so important, why I think this book is a wonderful book to read, is it because it reminds us that through Jesus, we are being restored to be able to do the very things that we were to do in the garden. And just like the first man and woman, Adam and Eve, just like the people of Israel, we have a choice to make today. We get to choose. Will I choose blessing or will I choose discipline? Now, we don't lose our salvation. Jesus paid for all our sins, past, present, future. We are now right with God for eternity. We're already living in that eternity existence. But will we experience the blessing of that existence? Will we share that blessing with others if we're still living somewhat disobedient to God? And so to the extent that we can release more of ourselves, we can, we can let go of more of ourselves, that we can experience more of that blessing and we can give that blessing unto others. And so that's our hope with the class. And if you can join it, I'd recommend that you go to the Mariner's Church website and sign up. It's our first time. We're going to do this again, I think, in the spring. So our first run through it. I'm sure that we will improve it because people will give us feedback, and we hope they do. Um, and we'll learn some things and then do it again in the spring. And, and hopefully over time, this will become a better and better class that will be a blessing unto others. So if you're part of the first class, you get to be part of the group that helps us form that class for future classes. Uh, Mariners had uh, rooted years ago, and we started it one way and over the years it kept improving over time and as a matter of fact to take this class if you're a mariner's person you have to go through rooted that's a 10-week class for discipleship it's very wise to do that first and then take this class but if you've already done rooted you can then jump straight into this class or the other two deep dives which are wonderful as well one of them is the story of god which is essentially covering the entire kind of picture of the story that's um, in the Bible, get a, get a real, like kind of, I was giving you this big picture of the Bible. Uh, that's going to be taught by Eric Geiger. And then the reason for God uh, going to be taught by um, our, the pastor at Huntington Beach, uh, Kyle Costello. And that is going to follow Tim Keller's book, Reason for God. And it's about our faith. How do we understand our faith? But not only that, know how to um, share it with others. So it's kind of an apologetics class. Really good. You don't have to do rooted to take that one but you have to have done rooted to do the image of God or um, Eric's class, Reason for God. Hope that wasn't too confusing. Um, so I, part of the reason I felt like this class, again, to recap what we just went through, um, to, to do this class today was to show how we can read the Bible very differently through this picture of, of God's plan, his creation, our fallingness, you know, our brokenness, and then his redemption, his mercy, always ready for us to bring us back to the blessings. That's really God's heart for his people, and that never changes. So if there's discipline, like Hebrews tells us, that we should not push away that discipline. We should accept it as God's love because it's kind of redirecting us to his blessing. And so let me close in prayer, and then let's get into our conversation. Lord Jesus, thank you for this time with my brothers and sisters for this huge chapter of the blessing of your word, O oh God, into our hearts. Father, we thank you that you love us so much that you pursue us, 
that you seek to um, redirect us when we go in the wrong direction. We are all prone to wonder, Lord. We're all prone to rebel and want things our way. And Lord, I, there are consequences for that, not just for ourselves, but for others and for the world. Um, there's so much suffering today that comes at the hands of our rebellion and our disobedience of that. And so we repent for that. And we are thank, thankful, Lord, that you do uh, forgive and offer us grace through Jesus Christ. And you restore upon us, God, blessing upon blessing upon blessing. And more importantly, Lord, a purpose and a plan to participate with you in bringing blessing onto the world, restoring all things, God, under your rule, and that we might see your good works all around us, oh God. Bless my brothers and sisters as they seek to learn these things from you. And as we grow together, we praise you, O oh Lord. Amen. Amen. Okay, guys, do we need a break <laughs> before we get started? Um, all right, let's see if you guys have any questions. Again, feel free to type the questions on the um, chat box um, and I'll be happy to answer and we can get into hopefully a, a good conversation about this. Even if you said, I have no clue what you just said, help me understand, <laughs> whatever, whatever, no questions off limits. So we'll give you a chance to type some things onto the screen. Any questions about the class? Okay, here's one. Do we inherit the same Old Testament covenant and laws, the Mosaic law that we just read about, that was given to the Jews in Leviticus now that we are under Jesus' new covenant? Should we expect the same repercussions or dis for disobedience? Fabulous question. Jesus says there is a new covenant. And in fact, that's New Testament, Old Testament. There's a new covenant uh, through Jesus. And often we tend to think that through Jesus, the, uh, the new covenant does not include or depend, or not depend, it's not the right word, does not include a level of need for obedience. I don't think that's the case. You see Jesus time and time in scripture calling people to live out their faith. Paul, I urge you to live according to the faith, right? To who you are. Now we are given enormous grace in, in the new covenant because Jesus has already paid for the price of our sins. So no longer like in the old covenant where God, it was, okay, you do this and I do this. That covenant is not the same for us anymore. That, that covenant now is, is completed and satisfied in Jesus. And there's a new covenant in which now it's made by the blood of Jesus already paid for our sins. So do we expect the same repercussions? No. There are consequences, yes, but I don't think it's the same repercussions. Uh, perhaps those who do not trust God, um, outside again of, of even the people of Israel, those who are not believers, right? There is a consequence for their sin that those who believe have freedom from that consequence because we trust in Jesus to pay for our, our sins. Uh, to the extent that we do that, 
he is the one who essentially pays the price. I mean, every time we sin, Paul says, should we go on sinning because we have this level of grace? No. Every time we do, we are essentially, um, you know, looking at Jesus on the cross and saying, okay, you didn't do enough, right? I mean, we want to try to live in the grace. Not that we won't sin because we do. Um, I even says in Romans 7, I, you know, I do what I don't want to do and I don't do what I want to do. And I think that's a struggle for all of us but there's no longer condemnation um, in Christ Jesus. And so it's not the same. It's not the same. Um, what's beautiful, what the, where I believe that the covenant in the Old Testament was demonstrating is that if it were up to us to accomplish this, we couldn't. Years and years and years of God working with the people of Israel and helping them did not, what, what they, were, they failed to do it, they could not do it. Adam failed, right? That Adam and Eve failed. Israel failed, and we would too if it were not for Jesus. Um, I hope that answered your question. Uh, glad you explained the difference between covenant and contract. Okay, cool. Thanks, Kathy. Uh, your class is two hours. Yes, the, so one hour of lecture. Um, and then the second hour, they actually send you off to a small group. So the first hour is going to be done on a live um, YouTube, a private one, so people will get the link to it. And then they will be sent off to a Zoom where they will meet with the groups um, and the Mariners will set you up with a group and you'll have a leader to that group and there'll be questions uh, during that time. Also, when you sign up for this class, you'll get a, a booklet. This is the first draft of it. It's not official yet. It's pretty big. And it has, um, it has uh, four days of homework that you do before. So you get to do some readings ahead of the class and a little bit of questions to answer just to get you and I'm your mind thinking along these lines. And then during the class, you take notes. And then after the class, there's additional questions to answer. So the group will have plenty to talk about uh, in addition to getting to know each other and connecting because uh, they have a full hour also to be together as a group. So great, great question. And that's the same for all of the deep dive classes. Mm -hmm. One hour of instruction and one hour of group time. Yeah. Thank you. All right. Any other questions? Trying to see if I, I left anything out. I think I covered everything and then some. Were you going to hold all that? Was that too much? <laughs> Perfect. I have to review it again, though. Okay, well, yes, do read. Okay, so my recommendation is go back and read Leviticus 26 again. Yeah. Obviously, we read it pretty fast. It's a lot. It's 46 chapters. Uh, verse 46 gives you the context, like this is going to, this is between God and his people, but the rest of it is kind of the, the action. So it's a lot. Do, do read it again and just park yourself, in my opinion, I think, because we are Christ followers and are living under his grace, Park yourself in verse 3 through verse 13, which is the mm -hmm. promise of the blessing, which, which is what Jesus has secured for us through his blood. He, mm -hmm. He's the one who is the perfect, obedient one. And by his obedience, all of these blessings are, are fulfilled uh, to us. And now, will it all be fulfilled today? You know, obviously, I'm sure we're, some of us are struggling right now, and there's still challenges 
there is that promise that goes all the way through to Revelation. And at the end of the book of Revelation, verse uh, chapter 21 and 22, you see that that's when finally we see the fullness, right? Jesus returns. We see the fullness of this blessing take place. There's a new earth, new creation. Um, but in the meantime, we're in the now and not yet, right? We're already experiencing the blessings, but we're still waiting for the fullness of those blessings. And I think reading those verses are just a great way to remind ourselves of the incredible gift we've been given of grace um, and mercy by God. Absolutely. And you can do that in the Old Testament. You don't have to read that. You don't have to go to the New Testament to see God's grace and his mercy. That's the part I love. The entire Bible is showing God's grace and his mercy. Jesus said, it all points to me. And it's true. It all points to him. What was your translation you were reading from? Uh, Christian Standard Bible. Okay. Yeah, good question. That's what Mariners is using now. The Christian Standard Bible is very, very similar to the NIV. One of these days, I'll do a little video on the very various translations and you know just a brief overview of like why how why we have these translations and and how to choose or how to understand them. Um, I'll try to do one something like that in one of my groups or classes. I, I think that would be helpful. I was reading along in the NIV when you were reading, and yours made a little more English sense. Okay. So I liked your version. Yeah, it, it just depends on the group that's translating. So yeah, they all, because you're taking what, one language to another and uh, it's a very, very complex process to translate um, the Bible. I When I was in seminary and I got to learn a little bit about the original languages and the process of translation, um, man, I would be doing that with fear and trembling if I were one of the teams. And <laughs> yeah. many of these teams are very large. They're like a hundred people working on it. And it's a very, big process to translate a Bible and, and still over the years, we learn more and we make adjustments. You can see the NIV, for example, has gone through quite a few changes as more things are, are understood. Um, and it's not perfect because it's the translation, right? So it's always good sometimes if we get really hung up in a word to go one of those, uh, they're on the web, there's various websites where you can say, what's the Greek word or the Hebrew word behind this and such? You can do your own little research uh, and commentaries do a good job at also talking about that. But sometimes looking at the original word makes a big difference. What's the name of the, the missionary group that does send translators out for like tribes and things to put the Bible well, in their language? Yeah, there's actually quite a few. I, the big one I'm, I think you might be thinking of is Wycliffe. Yes, um, yeah. yes, yes. Um, so there, yeah, there's actually quite a few groups that are translating the Bible into, you know, hopefully every language around the world and getting, getting people, many of these countries, it's really remarkable. There are many, many people around the world that still have never, never heard of Jesus or heard of God's word. Um, or if they've heard of God's word, all they have, if they have any scriptures might be like a few pages or one book that someone gave them or translated, um, a lot of places, even even those who are being translated by these organizations, maybe only have the New Testament and they're still working on the Old Testament. And so in my office, I have a lot of Bibles and I forget what a privilege it is to have all these Bibles all around me and access to God's word. You know, any any room in my house has a Bible. It's amazing. Yeah. 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 All right, guys. All right.
Thank you so much for joining me today. God bless you. And um, yeah, if you, as you continue to let these, this information percolate in your mind or the, the Leviticus 26 in your mind, if you have any questions or any thought, just feel free to send me a direct message or an email. And uh, I'd love to continue the conversation. My goal today was just to uh, show how, wow, there is uh, an incredible narrative through the Bible about God's image in us and how important we are to God. And so I hope you feel so much more important to God today. It was great. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you, Inez, for everything you do. Looking forward to seeing you next Thursday. Sounds good. Okay. Bye-bye. Take care. Take care. God bless.